We now know what happened to Jacob Wetterling, but the whereabouts of dozens of other Minnesota children still remain a mystery. 19-year-old Susan Swedell disappeared from Lake Elmo 29 years ago this week. This has never been a closed case. It's been a nightmare. It was a snowy night, only about a 15-minute ride. It's just like she fell off the face of the earth. There, there isn't a day that goes by that, that they don't think about Susan. And... I, I think in Susan's case, somebody knows something. Welcome to the Still Missing Podcast. I'm your host, Kara Thanert. Once I got into my master's program, we had to do some type of a crime analysis. And I thought it would be very interesting to do a case analysis and see what was done in it, what could have been done in it, and if there's any potential for future results with investigations. And so I knew that this was an important case for my dad, and it was something that get home with me too. I was completely fascinated when Jesse had mentioned his daughter had written her master's degree thesis on this case. He sent it to me, and I've read it several times. It's 30 pages long, very well written, and from what I can tell, careful in delivery of the facts. His daughter was able to directly view certain parts of the case file when she wrote this paper. I'm going to have you listen to three excerpts. There are a lot of important sections to this paper, and really, to this case overall, that I have never touched on. I've barely scraped the surface of this case. For example, there are endless things that the Swells and Jesse have done over the years that I haven't touched on yet. And this paper discusses everything from how the case was mishandled initially, with no formal statements taken, to how it was finally handled properly 10 years later. And that despite the passage of time, there were still significant findings in the case made due to all of Jesse's work. But because I am new to this case, I am still trying to wrap my head around what happened and if there are still answers to be found within the information we have, and most specifically, why it all does not add up in my head. Therefore, the excerpts that you'll be hearing are focused on the facts of the disappearance and Susan's life prior to the disappearance. I am pulling them out of this paper, out of their context, because before we can talk about anything else, we need to talk more about what happened and get as much of that information out there as we can. Excerpt number one. What was going on in Susan's life prior to her disappearance? According to reports around November to mid-December 1988, Susan's boyfriend, who was described as a mature 16-year-old, did break up with her. Shortly thereafter is when her behavior reportedly began to change. Susan reportedly began going out a lot on the weekends to a particular dance place called Bumpers, a non-alcoholic teen dance club, and began talking on 976 chat lines. Susan reportedly ran up her mom's phone bill to around $400 with these chat lines. It would appear that a handful of men entered Susan's life within the two to three weeks prior to her disappearance, and subsequently become either a person of interest or a primary suspect as the investigation continued over the past 22 plus years. With this information, our picture of Susan's life broadens a bit, and some of what we already know is reaffirmed. We understand now that she had gone through a teenage breakup, which can become a tumultuous time in a young girl's life. In response, she started going out and talking on the chat lines, dating and trying to meet new people. When put in combination with additional information I've read online and heard in interviews that Susan had gone to college at 18 and then returned home after the first year, because she wasn't ready to live away from home. Our picture of Susan starts to become much clearer. She was an innocent young girl, 
trying to find her way in love and life. Excerpt number two. What do we know about what happened on Tuesday, January 19th, 1988? According to original police reports and supplemental law enforcement reports, on Tuesday, January 19th, 1988, Susan Ann Swedell went to her job at Kmart, where it appears she was to work until approximately 9 p.m. However, her start time was not indicated in the file. She apparently had plans to go out that evening with her ex-boyfriend, but because of inclement weather, blowing snow and blizzard-like conditions, he reportedly called her about an hour or so before she was to get off of work to tell her he would not be meeting up with her to go out due to the weather. Susan reportedly told her ex-boyfriend that she would give him a call once she got home, which she had done so in the past, and which she apparently understood would be within an hour of her shift. However, Susan apparently had told her ex-boyfriend's cousin that same day, whom Susan either saw at Kmart while working or during lunch with her. The reports are not clear in this regard based on inconsistent witness statements that she had plans to go out with a gentleman. She reportedly described this man as a stripper that she had apparently just met and had been dating and was very excited about. In addition, at 9 p.m., not long before Susan was to leave her shift at Kmart for the evening, her mother called to warn her about the weather conditions and to persuade Susan to possibly drive to her dad's home, which was closer to work, in an attempt to keep Susan off the bad roads. Susan informed her mom that she would be okay and that she was planning on taking the frontage road home and that she would be home shortly. I'm not entirely sure what to make of all this information. I do know that her ex-boyfriend was not a person of interest and he had been cleared early on. Also, I have contacted him and he has agreed to be interviewed. What I'm hearing in this excerpt is perhaps a picture of normal teenage behavior, where you're making plans and changing plans quickly. This would also line up with the reports that she was receiving lots of phone calls at work. And we have to remember that back in 1988, there were no cell phones. So if you changed plans with someone, it wasn't as easy as a quick text to let people know. So it could be the case that multiple people think you are doing various things because they haven't been updated on your plans. To add to the intrigue, later in the paper, at one point, it is also written that someone stated Susan had intended to go visit friends at college that night. Excerpt number three. What are the events that occurred at the gas station? According to reports, Susan did change from her work clothes, which law enforcement would learn was a red pants outfit, into a short denim miniskirt with a sweater as her top and black shoes with no boots. Susan drove her own vehicle from work and apparently arrived at a gas station a mile from home around 9.15 to 9.30 p.m. Susan was reportedly seen by the gas station attendant through the glass window pulling into the gas station immediately followed by another vehicle. Susan reportedly pulled up and parked along one side of the gas station, and this other vehicle pulled up right alongside of her on her driver's side. Susan reportedly got out of her car and went directly into the front passenger side of the other vehicle that pulled up next to her. The driver of that vehicle then pulled up next to a gas pump to get some gasoline. The description of this vehicle would subsequently change from what was provided by the gas station attendant in the initial police reports to when a formal statement would be taken from the attendant by law enforcement 10 years later. In addition, reports will vary about Susan going inside the gas station to ask the attendant if she could leave her car at the station because she was having car trouble, to Susan not going inside the station at all. Susan and this other person, 
who would be identified by the gas station attendant as a good-looking 20 to 24-year-old man who was 5'11 to 6 feet tall, muscular build, with mid-length, wavy, dark blonde to dark brown hair, unshaven, with a trim mustache, and leather coat, were standing outside next to the vehicle and next to each other while the gas pumped. The two were reportedly talking to each other like they knew one another, or were at least comfortable with one another. Susan reportedly did not appear to be in distress. It was during this time that the gas station attendant reportedly noticed Susan's outfit, the mini skirt and sweater, and that Susan was not wearing her jacket. When finished pumping the gas, the man reportedly went inside to the station to pay with cash, and Susan got back into the front passenger seat of his vehicle. After paying for the gas, the man returned to his vehicle, and the two drove off together, leaving Susan's vehicle behind, still parked off to the side of the gas station. Susan did not arrive home within the hour as her mom and ex-boyfriend had expected her to, for her words to them over the phone that night before she got off of work, nor did she arrive home later that night. As it got later into the evening, Susan's mom contacted law enforcement, afraid that Susan may have gone into the ditch due to weather and bad road conditions. A patrol car eventually located Susan's vehicle where she had left it at the gas station that evening. sounded like there were inconsistent statements about whether she reported whether Susan actually went into the gas station to report car trouble or whether she, she didn't. With regards to the inconsistent statements by the gas station attendant, in terms of the vehicle the man was driving, and whether Susan came into the gas station or not, here's when each statement was taken and what it was. In 1988, the gas station attendant reported that Susan went inside the gas station to ask if she could leave her car there due to car trouble. This was when the man's vehicle was described as possibly a white Ford Thunderbird, late 70s to early 80s, but very dirty. When her formal statement was taken a decade or so later, once Jessie was finally in charge of the case, this is when she did not have recollection of Susan going into the gas station at all. Her description of the car also changed to being dark in color, possibly an LTD-style vehicle, Chevrolet Impala, late 70s or early 80s. Well, I think what happened was, and I covered this a little bit in my paper, is when you have that time gap from when the initial report was taken and then, what, what was it, like 10 years later when they started to actually interview some of these people, people can report things that they, you know, it, it was such a long time that people can't really remember as well. And, you know, I was actually just reading through this again this morning, and that was one thing that I that I thought about was, you know, what I would do, I mean, and I'm not a police officer or anything or a detective, but, you know, I would think that with respect to that gas station attendant, I would think that the report that was taken from her that night or the following day when they took it, I would probably go with what was said at that time versus what was said 10 years later. As she stated, it is not uncommon that this happens due to the passage of time between when the disappearance occurred and when the formal statement was taken. And we are now even further from the day of disappearance. But I have to be honest, I still want to talk to the gas station attendant to see what she has to say. Are you able um, to tell me who the, the name of the gas station attendant? Yeah, yeah, that's the matter of red. That's was her name. What was the last name? Yeah. 
Do you have her contact information? Like, is she somebody that, you know, no? No, I really don't know. Do you know how you spell the last name? I began looking for, or really simply trying to figure out how to locate the gas station attendant. Another group of people who I've been actively looking to speak with are Kmart employees. I did find one who was willing to speak with me. Here's what she had to say. You worked at the Kmart during that time or around the time or? Around the time. I was at 88 or 87 through 88. Do you remember what the common shift lengths were at the time? Six to eight hours. Six to eight hours. What times would they start? Seven to three. Seven to three. My shifts were two to ten. Yeah. Basically, that was my shift, was two to ten. I think there was some like one to nine. So I think those were the shifts. Do you remember whether they had restrictions on where you guys could park? There was, okay, the parking lot was from the front of the building so that it went north and then to kind of to the west. So we had to park in the northern section and then there were two rows to the west that we could park in. So it was like, we had like a designated area. We could park from like maybe halfway down on the northern end and then two rows of the western section of the parking lot. To the west, there was a VFW and a Stillwater Bowl. So you always had drunks running around, walking around, you know. When people ended their shift, did most people walk out together? Uh, most of them walked out by themselves. I walked out by myself, and then sometimes there was a gal that I would walk out with. Both of us were kind of like scared. Did you ever work with Susan, or did you ever see her at all during the time you worked there? I... I saw her, but I didn't really know her, not really talk to her much. You know, I just, you know, just said hi, and that was it. She was short. Um, that's about all I can remember, and I know she was very quiet, kept to herself. And I remember her giving phone calls at work, and they finally told her that the phone, call, phone calls had to quit because she was doing a lot of them. So I don't know if this person was just you know, randomly calling her or what the deal was on that. But they finally told her phone calls had to quit. That I remember. Do you remember uh, a distinct start to that? No, it was like all the time. So it was like, you know, like the time that I said, and I don't remember if she was there when I started or she started after I did. That I don't remember. Just out of curiosity, where was the phone at the Kmart? Okay, as you walked in the front door was the customer service desk. So the customer yeah, phones were right there. So it was like you walked in and it was like probably 10 feet. And call them up and say, hey, don't so you have a phone call. But if you get like one, two phone calls on the shift, that was, that was, you don't get any more during the day. You tell this person to call back at the end of your shift or on your break or, you know, but she'd get like four or five in a, in a shift. And we finally told her, hey, you know what, this is enough. So I don't know if this was the same person or if her family was calling her or... In listening to her talk about the Kmart, I started to think further about it. Up until now, I had been thinking of the Kmart as one of two things, or possibly both. The meeting point between Susan and her abductor prior to them heading to the gas station, or simply the place she was receiving a lot of phone calls from Dale. But there's other options, too, about Kmart. What about the locals hanging out at the Stillwater Bowl? She could have seen them or known them. Pretty convenient spot for someone to tamper with her car 
and just happened to be there to help her out. I was still searching for the gas station attendant at this time. While searching for her, I did happen upon another person who I believe worked at the Kmart. He declined to speak with me, but ultimately conversed with me via messenger. He said to me this, Over the years, I've been interviewed by the cops on this because of what I saw at work. They were here last year with more info for me to look at. I just don't want to get too involved since I gave all my info to cops already. I worked with her for a couple months. We lived close by and went through her line a lot because my mom liked her as a cashier. When I worked with her, I knew a security guard and a clean team member who followed her around and knew her schedule. It was odd, but didn't think much of it. I reached out to cops on the 10-year anniversary because I saw it on TV and it jarred my memory. Finding the gas station attendant took me a few weeks, but I did find her. On the phone, she was very nice and willing to speak with me. She also couldn't believe that Susan was still missing after all these years. Here was our conversation. So you worked at that gas station at the time. What was the gas station called? It was... I don't think it was Circle K. The K station is what we called it, because it was Coons Oil Company. How long had you worked there? I had worked there probably a year already. What year did this happen? It was 1988. And I had worked there probably two years already. And were you, at the time, were you in your 20s then, or? Yep, I would have been, yep, in my 20s. And what do you remember about that gas station? Was it? I mean, it's a small, you know, out in the middle of nowhere there by the airport and by the fairgrounds there between Lake Elmo and Stillwater on that number five or whatever that runs by there. So, I mean, it was, you were out in the middle of nowhere. What do you remember about that particular night? If I reckon, if I thinking right, it was kind of snowy and icy that night. What do you remember about her pulling into the gas station? She come in with a vehicle and another guy followed her in and they went and parked her car over by a parking spot, you know, in an open area. And then they got, they went and put gas in and then they came in and paid for it and left. Did she say anything to you? Not to me. She was, she didn't seem like she was, she seemed like they were acquaintances and she knew them. I mean, they were just having a conversation and talking and. So it didn't feel like anything was unusual to you? Uh Uh-uh. Because her mom and supposedly her fiance come in like the next day or a couple days later. And I tried saying that she was scared of him, and and I was like, no, that's not the feeling that I got from her. And did the guy she was with, what do you remember about him, if anything? I don't really remember. I think he was dark-haired, bundled up, you know, because it was kind of cold and snowy. And do you remember what time of night it was? It was dark. I'm thinking... Six seven o'clock in there, some time frame. It wasn't late because we were only open till nine o'clock, and I know it was before that. It was I know it was getting dark. Do you remember if that was a uh, if it was a busy night? Oh, we had we had times when it would get really really busy. 
and then times it would be kind of quiet and slow. And it was, I wasn't really busy. It wasn't really busy when they came in. I'm assuming that at various points, authorities have contacted you for additional statements. Do you know how many times they've actually reached out to you? Once. When it first happened, I had to go in and and try doing sketches and try picking out vehicles. And then, oh, I don't know how many years ago I got contacted again, and they came down and I met with one of the officers, and they were doing a cold case thing then. And Looking, imagining that gas station in my mind, where did Susan, so she, did she pull her car off to the left or the right? She pulled her car out into that open area between the two driveways. You know, one came, actually there was three driveways, I think, two off on the main. And then, because they came in one driveway, there's an open area where you could take that shortcut off to that other road that went south. And then she pulled right out, out in that area, open area, and parked her car. And I've read that she had came in and told you that she had car trouble and wanted to know if she could keep her car there. Do you recall that? I don't remember her saying anything about having trouble with her car, but I know they asked if it was all right to leave it there. And I Because she was from the area. Had you ever seen her before? I think I had seen her mom before. Was it a small town in that area? Lake Elmo's real small. I mean, if you, if you, it was a grocery store, a gas station, a bar, a car, Dodge dealership, little car lot. I mean, it was like 20 feet long, a few houses. It was pretty small. You blinked and you miss it. So the other thing that I had heard was that there may or may not have been reports that you noticed that she was wearing a skirt and was underdressed for the weather. Do you recall that? Well, that's what I was trying to think of now, what she was dressed, because that's what I'm thinking, if I remembered right, that she wasn't dressed the best or the warmest, I should say. From your recollection, nothing stood out about them or what they were doing or how they were acting or what they were wearing. It was just a very normal thing where they came in, paid for their gas, asked if they could leave their car, and just left. Yeah. I didn't get no vibes that she was scared or if she didn't trust him. Well, I don't know if I should go or kind of standoffish. I didn't. That wasn't at all. They just kind of like they acquaintances and friends and... After talking with the gas station attendant and hearing what the Kmart employees had to say, and also after reading your theories and comments on Facebook, it really got me thinking. Could he have been a frequent customer at Kmart? A fellow employee on the clean team or the security team? A Stillwater Bowl regular? And if I recall, didn't Susan have a second job somewhere? You'd mentioned that she had notes on her bedstand, and I was just wondering if you thought that it was just somebody that she'd met on those chat lines or somebody she'd met in some capacity in life or if it was a person who she'd seen repeatedly before and then this is what they did i would just off the cuff i would say if somebody she met on the chat lines uh she was on there i mean hundreds of dollars worth you know um when we looked at the bills do those bills are they bills like today where it would it lists like phone numbers or is it just quantity of minutes and then an amount 
you know, it's, that's all it is, quantity minutes, and then out, uh, and there was no phone number listed. And I checked into that, which should have been done right away, but again, I'm trying to reach back a few years in my head, but, uh, sure. I checked them out and, uh, you know, I was hoping that they were archived somehow and they, they were not. Did she have another job somewhere? I had read that she had two jobs. Yeah, I believe she had two jobs in this, in the same building. That building at the time, you know, had the, it was a Walmart and, or not a Walmart, but a Kmart. And then there was other businesses inside of like a shoe store, a clothing store. Boy, I don't remember hardware store, pharmacy. Yeah, it's all gone now, but I mean, the, the structure is there, but. In all the interviews I've heard so far, there has been some conflicting or confusing information I've tried to make sense of. For example, you may have noticed that the timing of when Susan got off work and when she arrived at the gas station is different from different people. We heard the gas station attendant say that the gas station closed by 9 p.m., which is a piece of information you might imagine out of everything she could possibly remember, even 30 years later, because for those years in her life, her schedule was dictated by those opening and closing times. She noted Susan arrived a few hours earlier than that, and I've heard that from Jesse as well. But then we have the paper, written with the case file in sight, and that puts Susan at the gas station between 9.15 and 9.30 p.m. These inconsistencies could very well be due to what Jesse's daughter touched on earlier, the passage of time and its effects on our ability to remember. The only thing throughout every interview, and you heard it again today, that seems to be rolling in hands down across the board consistently, that Susan knew this guy she drove away with. Which brings me to my final interesting piece from the paper. I've had lots of thoughts about the petcock on her vehicle. The main reason I've been caught up on it is because of exactly what I just said. If Susan knew this guy, why would he have to go to the trouble to tamper with her car? Couldn't he get her in his car at any time they were just meeting up? The paper details a timeline of what occurred with the car. It states that the car was located the night of January 19th, 1988, by a patrol car. It states Susan's mom had the vehicle towed home the day after, on January 20th. The vehicle then sat parked out on the street until January 25th. On January 25th, Susan's mom drove the vehicle to get groceries and ended up having car trouble. When she took the vehicle to a shop, it was determined that the car appeared to have been tampered with. So there are potentially five or six days between when the car was parked overnight at the station to when a mechanic reviewed the car and indicated it had been tampered with. So what do you think? Does it change anything with this more detailed timeline of the car that it sat for five or so days before the car trouble was actually confirmed? What do you make of this? You had written on page 27, you said, it is this author's belief upon review of the case files made available for the paper that there are individuals who have already made statements to law enforcement who either know what happened to Susan or are responsible for what happened to her. Do you recall what your theory at the time was or what you'd read that made you feel like, or was it simply that you felt like the case had been so mishandled that, of course, they probably interviewed or they came across the person who did this, but they just didn't handle the case properly? No, it wasn't that at all. It was, I think, once it got going, I think the case was handled properly. And it was because of those statements that were taken, once the case kind of got 
off the ground and running. It was within some of those statements that were made that I was thinking, you know, I just, it just seems like that person is in here just based on some of the things that were, were said in some of those statements and that maybe were a little bit corroborated by other statements that were made by other people. So to me, that's where that came from, just reading the, the interviews and things that could corroborate or that were related to those interviews made it look like I think that person has been talked to already. But again, I'm not, you know, an investigator. This is just based on what I've read and what the information is that I had available to me. If you know anything about what happened to Susan Swaddell or anything that could be relevant, please speak up and contact the Washington County Sheriff Department's tip line at 651-430-7850. Additionally, please help get Susan's story out there by going to facebook.com slash still missing podcast and share the post with Susan's photo in it. Next time on Still Missing. I just got a sense that he was really fast, maybe because he was more city-like or something. And we were real country girls. And Thank you for listening to Still Missing. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have suggestions for how to make the podcast better, please email us at hello at stillmissingpodcast.com.